0: Whiskey and Watches podcast. On this week's episode, we have a special treat for y'all, as myself, Buzz, and Spence sit down with our friends Mike, Chancellor, and Chancellor's family member John, who happens to run the Old Pogue Distillery in Maysville, Kentucky. We sit down with John, Chancellor, and Mike and talk, well, as you might imagine, Whiskey and Watches. So get ready and sit back, because it's time for another episode of the Whiskey and Watches podcast.
1: Welcome, everybody, to episode 70 of the Whiskey and Washes podcast. And we are actually doing this in person uh, with several uh, several guests. Uh, We're actually on location at the Old Pogue Distillery in Maysville, Kentucky. Uh, We're doing this in person. It's a ton of fun. Uh, So welcome, everyone. We've got with us John uh, from the distillery, uh, his cousin, Chancellor, who... uh, You'll recognize the connection to, to us here in a little bit, and our buddy uh, Mike Pandolfo, along with me, uh, Spangler, and Buzz, all in the same room. Uh, so this is exciting, and we're actually gonna start, uh, this is gonna just kinda be more of a recorded conversation. We're gonna learn a little bit, of, learn a little bit about the products that they make here, but uh, we're gonna taste a lot of this uh, in person, or uh, on, on the recording, and just kinda hopefully forget that my iPhone's in the middle of the table.
2: <laughs> um, and they just
1: pick up what we pick up. So there will be some watches. This will probably focus more on the whiskey and about uh, you know, the history of the distillery, and we'll just go from there. So we're hoping everybody enjoys this as much as we do, although probably not as much as getting to try all three of these whiskeys uh, in succession.
3: Nice to have everybody.
1: Thanks for having us. Absolutely. This is this, we've been looking forward. We've been trying to plan this for a while, yeah. so I'm glad it all finally worked out. And uh, our wives, uh, for those of us who are married, let us come <laughs> with us <Sunday> afternoon. Hold on,
2: hold on. So,
1: so, so, John, why don't you tell us uh, what we got in the glass right now? What what we're starting with?
3: This is uh, Old Pot Bourbon Master Select. Um, it's our
1: most voluminous
3: brand. Honestly, we have been pioneering this since 2004. Um, it's a family favorite. Two, it's my personal favorite, um, ninety-one proof bourbon, nine years old. So what we shoot for, um, just trying to make a really balanced product. And you had mentioned earlier when we were talking, um, you guys use fifty percent, fifty-one percent corn. It's a uh, seventy, sorry, corn, sorry, sorry yeah, twenty percent rye, ten percent malted barley. Um, we usually bash about twenty barrels together and in individual bottlings. You can definitely, at least on the nose, really smell that that rye is the secondary grain component. It has kind of that old oak kind of smell that you get.
2: That's, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah, real yeah, good. Very good. That's yeah, good. That's real yeah, good. good. <laughs> yeah,
3: Trying to describe all the little nuances in bourbon. It's a tough thing to do. It gets very subjective, honestly. It does. It's a weird thing to do when you're. someone has to listen to it later on, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. Well,
4: I mean, Michael could say whatever he wants, right? you could say, like, this tastes like lemon zest and paprika. Yeah. and we would, you and know, immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, would immediately, we would immediately think that it tastes like that. Yeah. Um, so we
3: honestly usually don't talk. Do a tasting, Cam. It's better to write the sauce down, compared notes later.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> it's um, delicious. I can tell you that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan.
1: Having not had this before, uh, it is absolutely delicious. No good. <laughs> we should please.
4: Maybe talk a little bit about the the history of the distillery and and the sure. location too, because mm-hmm. John yeah. John and I are both descended um, from the founder of the distillery. Correct, um, John in a direct line, and and me slightly less direct.
3: Um, yeah, H. E. Pogue the first, Henry E. Pogue the first started this thing uh, back in eighteen sixty seven specifically, and he was uh, working with O. H. P. Thomas at that point in time, running the O. H. P. Thomas distillery. And H.E. Pogue ended up taking over total ownership of that company in 1876, rebranded it as the H.E. Pogue uh, Distillery at that point in time. And, and for reference, my dad is or Pogue V. Um, and that's what the H.E. stands for, the H.E. Pogue Distillery. So started way back in the 1800s, um, was trucking along, doing excellent business here in Maysville, Kentucky. And that's why we're in this particular abode here. This was his home. Um, this is where he would literally oversee the distillery, which used to be across the street from
4: this place. Star Terrace. Star Terrace is, is the it. name name of the home, and I don't think um, the star is still on the terrace. Is no. it? No,
3: the whole terrace mm-hmm. slid down the hillside. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was uh, the 1950s. I think it used to be a big marble terrace, beautiful from what I can understand, um, but very heavy on the downhill side of the structure, and it disconnected.
4: 1950s. So this house was in significant disrepair um, back in the late 90s and early aughts. I remember my, yeah. my mom coming here because my, my great-grandmother lived either, she lived here for a while and she lived in a house up the way um, yeah. and we came down and I wasn't allowed to come into the house because they were afraid it was I was going to fall through something or something was going to fall <laughs> on me but uh, an executive from Procter & Gamble bought the place back in the mid-aughts yeah. mid to late aughts yeah. and you know, re- refinished it to the I mean, this is about as original as you can get. Very good. Yeah, um, it is.
3: 1845, originally constructed. The hardwoods are from 1890. Um, wow. The boards beneath them are original, and they're big, like, 3-inch hmm. by 15-inch whole pine boards, wow. hand-hewn. It's just how they did things back then. And brick house, they're, like, foot-and-a-half thick walls, except for this front one. It's wood wall lighter um, to deal with this gravity problem that's on the downhill side. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it. I mean, we lived in it until 1953. And that was my great-grandfather at that point in time. Who he, he sold it um, and moved to Fort Thomas, Kentucky, which is where I'm from and live to this day. Um, he ended up actually taking a job with Lucky Strike Tobacco in the 40s. And they employed him down in Covington making rum to flavor their cigarettes. So it gave him cause to go down there and leave his livelihood here. And um, between 53 and 85... I think two families lived here one of the families subleased it and it was a rental for many years and then 1995 it was vacated sat empty for like 10 years and then phil brain got a hold of it and started passionate up. so what is it what does it mean to you as somebody who's you know directly connected to this legacy distillery to now have the job of, of you know making sure that the same products coming out and sure carried on that family line it's surreal um, I never anticipated doing this for a career um, for a livelihood um, It was really one of those op- once in a lifetime opportunities that kind of presented itself to me and i I'm a risk taker when it comes down to it. I like to you know strike um, if i if I can if I see that possibility and it's a huge responsibility um fortunately I'm in this with many family members who bear the weight with me. Um, like, I, I think I said earlier, aroma can get really subjective, and I'm kind of a numbers person. That's how I was educated and trained, and I don't trust myself, so to have these people involved with me really, I don't know, it makes it fun, and that's how it started. Um, we're all kind of professional and trying to do this as uh, consistently as we can, and boy, it can get frustrating when it comes to aroma, so it helps <laughs> have people around mm-hmm. um, better that subject, and you, you all included. You know, it's, it's amazing the attraction uh, the bourbon industry has anymore. And people give us feedback, and I think it makes a better product. So,
4: so the distillery uh, shut down in its original iteration, what, 1937, after all of the, the original uh, product was sold during Prohibition as uh, oh, medicine, right?
3: Um, so, yeah, 1920 Prohibition goes into effect. Um, we had just about 50,000 barrels in storage at that point in time sold 46,000 of them as medicine during the 20s. And then 1926, the government came through, like, the entire industry and was auditing the inventory status. They found one barrel empty in our inventory, and it gave them cause to remove the remainder of it. They apparently did this to everybody because they were basically trying to quell prohibition, mm-hmm. trying to get the, uh, or not prohibition, but the black market side, trying to quell that. Um so, inventory is depleted, that's correct, and then 33 Prohibition ends. My ancestor, our ancestor, H.E. the third decided to sell the company, and he, I think that was the right decision at that point in time. I would have done the same thing. He sold it to another spirits producer um, by the name of Rose, and they came in, and indeed they operated for about four years making spirits, but they were absorbed into... Um, the Shenley Distillery in 1937 and Shenley was awarded a huge contract to make fuel, industrial alcohol for World War II. So they retrofitted the old plant um, to make airplane fuel and that's what that plant did all the way until 63 um, when they closed the doors on it. War's over and I guess everybody thought the Korean War was going to be World War III, so they were told to continue to operate uh, in the 50s. Um, but in sixty three Shemley kind of consolidated their business, took all the equipment out of the original shop and abandoned that place, sat empty for about ten years and then caught fire.
4: So then so then Jack and your grandfather yeah. came together what in the early mid nineties to yeah. to try yeah. to revitalize the brand?
3: Uh they were just having drinking parties. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, Excellent. Kind of, we inherited all this stuff. I mean that's kind of a advantage of selling the Company, my ancestor, our ancestor had the opportunity to take stuff with them. And yeah, I mean, how much of this
4: stuff did I pull out of my attic? Yeah, there's a lot. yeah, quite a bit of it.
3: Um, and it, that's kind of what bound us together. Um, was this common subject and having the old bottles of whiskey? They really were cracking them and just getting a great deal of joy out of it, kind of casually bringing them um, to to meetings. And
4: I actually found in. <clears throat> in a cabinet, in the back of a cabinet that I was just searching through a couple weeks ago, a bottle of, I don't know what the rye is. It's a four-year rye, old pogue whiskey that was bottled in 1933, something like that. Sure. And so, cork's intact, no sediment or anything in it. You didn't bring it? I, I was just thinking, I was myself, <laughs> I should have brought the thing down here, we could have cracked it. It's been in the back of a chest yeah. um, of drawers for 80 years. Just sitting, just sitting um, there. You know, I mean
5: that's a that's a time honored tradition, a uh, way to age very special bottles of whiskey. If you you hide them in the back of a, a chest of drawers, <laughs> and <it> just <laughs> optimal aging technology. Yeah. and then you forget you have it. it, it yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, I it's had very a
4: uh, a law school classmate whose uh, grandfather died a couple of months ago, and they were going through his stuff, and they um, opened up a um, opened up the back of his liquor cabinet and found a bottle of 10 uh, year old Old Fitz From Mid 50s So it was when Pappy Van Winkle Was making this yeah. stuff yeah. And so he's like What do I do with it I was like Well this is a half pint Of liquor That you can probably Sell for a thousand dollars Or you can like Go learn to like bourbon And then on like The first <laughs> anniversary Of his death Like drink the best Bottle of whiskey You'll ever have In your life and so I think I convinced him to do that. I, I should have convinced him to sell it to me for the price that was on the label. I Remember <laughs> that, that down here, uh, Jimmy. You're probably not going to be listening to this, but if you are, you're welcome.
2: What
3: an ethical young
5: man.
4: Ethical. Worked. That's Good. I took a class in that. Yeah.
3: Well, that's, that's you know, it's like the whole argument about rare whiskey now is you know, flip it or drink it, and I've I've always been team drink it, and it seems you know, Chancellor and John like the way that old pogue has sort of ingrained itself in your upbringing and your life that there is that value. And if you do have a rare, beautifully crafted spirit, you should drink it with mm-hmm. family and with people that you love. Yeah, you should. Yeah. It's, it's why we make it in the first place. Um, and it's, it's really why it exists is whiskey does not go bad. Mm-hmm. Once it's in this class, inert container, um, people really recognize its value. It didn't deteriorate. It's a definition of a commodity. People started to trade it, um, and then the government got involved and taxed it and caused a rebellion. And people <laughs> flooded this way and populated the state. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun to so just buy to the it up old essays, yeah. Yeah. You know. And I have been really fortunate. People have brought me a lot of bottles over the years from my lineage. And some of them aren't great. <laughs> a lot of them aren't great. But some of them are spectacular. And mm-hmm. to, to, I don't know, experience something that kind of embodies time, that is really unique. Um, you can really drink something from 100 years ago and get a sense of the aromas and yeah it's the terroir of um you know the the regional influence on a product it's it's funny being able to step back in time well and even yeah it. even drinking some dusties from like the 70s my brother and I were having this conversation and he was like well wood was different back then and I was like ha 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 was it and then I was like well I guess it was. I guess you may know a lot of distilleries are, you know, they're cutting down trees when the trees are younger and younger and younger. So you're not cutting down hundred-year-old oak trees anymore to make your barrels. And so the difference in the tightness in the wood grains... Will change the the flavor and the nose of the
1: whiskey. It's true. This oh, is man. why we have this guy on. Yeah. Well,
4: <laughs> My, Michael's over here auditioning for a job, and <laughs> <laughs> John John's already told him he can't pay him in money, but he can pay him in in brown, in brown yeah. liquor, um, corn juice, as I like to call it.
3: Forestry management's way up, you know, compared to the '70s specifically, or, or before, certainly. And things are—it's wild to try to keep up with that. I get periodicals from Independence Dave and they are kind of hilariously technical for me. They investigate fungal spores and have it in wood that's drying here in Kentucky. I mean, they are kind of cutting edge wow, on the wood yeah. science and the whole hundred year, you know, marker honestly, that is about the youngest tree they want to cut down because the yield was terrible at a hundred years and less. They want an older growth tree if they can get it. And I think there is an upper extent there mm-hmm. um, where the wood is not ideal for making whiskey. Um, that process is a big part of the aroma i mean when we will run these through gas chromatographs and try to get readouts on what's going on just to make it uh you know as consistent as possible and there's hundreds of compounds and in, in whiskeys and they're from the tree yeah we pre we put ethanol and water in there principally um so it is a wildly changing chemistry depending on the tree. Um, that's, that's our biggest battle is combating that particular variable. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, with it being under tight forestry management, I think things are more consistent than ever these
5: days. Well, um, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's sourcing sourcing the raw material, but then you also have to cooper it into a barrel. Right. That's there, There's a lot right. of kind of production bottlenecks to that because that's inherently a very 3D process that's not a a simple thing uh, that you would do if you were like framing the wall of a house, right? I mean, these are splines and, and bevels everywhere. It's not easy to do and there are a lot of
3: and we've had huge technological improvements too in the coopering I mean, compared to 100 plus years ago. My my ancestors' times, I have no idea how they were charring barrels. Like yeah. <laughs> Today, it's natural gas burners, and it's incredibly consistent. It's a really even char across the entire inside of that barrel. What number char do you do? Char four. Okay. Um
4: Michael, do you want to explain <laughs> for the rest <laughs> so of us? Yeah, for
3: the
1: rest so of us, tell us.
2: I, I uh, can't,
3: uh, probably can't explain this better than John, but well, you when, asked you, question, when you so are putting your hook. bourbon into a new oak barrel, you have to char the wood, which is... That's, part of, that's one of the innumerable characteristics. Elements. And basically, there's just different number chars. So there's mm-hmm. one, two, three, four. Does it go to five, John, or is it four at the top? Honestly, you, it, four is usually the top. Yeah, and yeah, it's like a couple right. seconds, so Correct. one is, what, five what, seconds? Is the or? funny thing about the char levels is... They will change depending on the cooper that you're going Oh, make. really? Okay. Um, but it usually is um, an equation of heat and time. Okay. Um, char four is just kind of the parlance. Um, but yeah, it's just about a 40 second burn most of the time for a char mm-hmm. four. Uh, but you go to another cooperage and their Someone flame's a little bit it. hotter and it's a 30 second burn. Um, yeah. But it's it's the heaviest char. Um, and, and that's really coveted for making bourbon because it creates a lot of surface area in the wood. Mm-hmm. And another oh kind of detail of when you set lignin on fire, it breaks into vanillin. Um, so this kind of caramel note that you tend to get in bourbon, it's usually vanillin. Um, and for that reason, that sweetness really just comes from a new barrel. You send these barrels overseas and they repurpose them for another whiskey they usually don't come out sweet because vanilla no has been depleted. Yeah. Um, so it's I don't know. Who do you uh, when you guys them? are done with your barrels? Who do you sell them to? Anybody. Anybody. <laughs> Anybody? It's, uh, Rum, Scotch, it's mostly yeah. beer these okay. days. It, we used to. Uh, we used to sell them to a brokerage um, who would tear them down into individual staves, cram them into shipping containers, get them overseas, and then those guys would rebuild them, which is. In art in itself putting all those barrels together. Um, the beer world has just been avidly coming off after our industry for a decade or so, making the bourbon barrel stouts or mm. porters, which are great, but we have this wild disparity in concentration and volume for that reason. Uh, the beer is typically like five percent, and liquor is usually in the 50 percent kind mm-hmm. of realm. So about a tenfold difference in the volumes that we move, and yeah. for that reason, the supply and demand model is way off. We used to sell barrels for like eighty bucks to the brokerage That was kind of the going rate to Scotland. Now they're about two hundred bucks. Wow! And that's, that's <laughs> the beer world just yeah. buy them up. That's they want as soon as they're dumped for some well, um, concerns about bacteria and growth. They want those things to be in a near you know sterile environment that's been soaked in alcohol. Mm, so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's been a that's been a wild change. Past ten or so years. Interesting.
4: So, uh, see, Michael is the last one to finish his old Pogue Master Select Bourbon. Should we switch to the rye?
3: Sure, it's your party. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
4: it's your party. <laughs> Our party. Pull yes. If you want
1: to, <laughs> Chance, can you hand me that last one? water? Yeah, thank you, Plenty water, water around here too. Yeah. <laughs>
5: Well, if supply and demand have to be off. At least it's in the direction
3: that's advantageous to you. True. It's very true. <laughs> um, it's it's funny. I mean, people come around wanting to buy old barrels, and gosh, everyone's a little jaw dropped by the price these days. And yeah, I understand. Mean, I know everybody wants a planter in their front yard, but <laughs> <laughs> these beer guys are intense. Yeah, people are doing yeah, all kinds of. I, my favorite is like the one where you'll have the like spinning shelf inside the barrel mm-hmm. and you can put your little uh, bar yeah. in there and everything. No.
2: Yeah, I have too many to bottles for that. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can
3: only do that if you have more than, I don't know, fifteen, maybe. You'd like an industrial lazy Susan. Mm-hmm. Right. So John That's you a were Susan, a I'm geologist like, like, working kind of hard yeah, before. So <laughs> yeah. this may be a little bit off. I'm sure you've been asked this before though. Did you see is there any kind of crossover from the skills and knowledge you had as a geologist to a distiller? And if there is crossover what is it? Uh, my for me specifically, it's it's mostly my interactions with the oil industry. Um, we refine crude oil through distillation. We take crude uh, straight from the ground, crack it through cracking towers, kind of phrase, but that involves separating hundreds of compounds from that substance that comes from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of on an educational path to go into that industry and. I ended up cleaning it up most of the time in the environmental field, mm-hmm. but that initial introduction to distillation is kind of made me the best candidate in the family to go run that crazy equipment over there. Interesting. Um, but I have, gosh, I don't have a significant background in biology and biochem and mm-hmm. that has taken me a considerable time to catch up on fungus and, and yeast. Yeah. Um, but fortunately I do have some help in the family. There's, doctors and some people that are biologists these days that, that have uh, aided me quite a bit and fortunately a lot of consultants too. Um, Pete Kamer is somebody I think I mentioned to you guys earlier. He's former master stiller that really improved my practical knowledge. Um, you can only do so much book reading before you need to uh, get your hands on the equipment and he really aided me quite a bit. Um, but you know I still learn every day I suppose. Um, never never stop.
4: So in the glass now, we've got the old Maysville Club, 100% malted rye whiskey. Correct. Um,
3: really so. old recipe, um, these, these next two. Maysville Club is an original brand of, of our ancestor. Um, 100% malted rye. Um, so the the malting part is, is basically taking rye grain and germinating it and then drying it before it hits a stalk on it. Um, we principally do that for harvesting the enzymes from the grain, but... When you do allow that grain to germinate, you create a wildly different aroma, um, much more kind of earth forward whiskey for me. And malting is very common in Europe and Scotch. Um, you know, specifically, there's there's always some malted grain involved in making whiskey. This is fantastic.
1: As I say, yeah. <laughs> the, what I would say is this is definitely. I know this is a higher proof than the previous one because we're going in order of proof. And this is the one that's bottled and bond, correct? Correct.
3: This is a five year old um, bottled
1: and bond malted grain. This is this to me has a smoother flavor and smoother finish than what we just had, and that's not to knock the previous one. This is this is amazing, yeah, and I like rise.
5: Yeah, everybody that's listening at home, you're really missing the part where we're all taking a sip out, out, out of our glasses. It <laughs> just everybody's just swishing it around in their mouth and making, like, knowing glances to to (laughs) all the men around the table and just, like, little head nods about just (laughs) one of the
3: lights (laughs) just happening. We are men. We drink
4: this. (laughs) (laughs) So so for the history buffs, and I might be telling a a total apocryphal tale on this um, because John couldn't uh, confirm this earlier and he said he deferred to me, so (laughs) it's probably right. Um, sure so, so anyway, the, the the malted rye recipe is is old, right? Like malted rye whiskey is what they fought the whiskey rebellion over in, in the late, uh, late 1700s. And so if you're drinking 100 percent malted rye, you're basically drinking the kind of whiskey that Jefferson and Adams and Madison were drinking when they were sitting around drafting the Constitution. Um, so you know we're sitting here in 2021, and we could be back in 1787. You know, enjoying a very I think, similar. I think glass Buzz of needs whiskey. to
3: talk like he's from 1787 for the <clears throat> next ten minutes.
5: Well, I, I could try. <laughs> Or if I had any like powdered wigs, those were in vogue too. Yeah, that might was. be a little bit yeah. easier than you know doing a, the voice acting.
4: Thing. Yeah, yeah, we are on a podcast though, so unless we're yeah, gonna be it's a like great a visual medium. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: We've
5: made that joke many a
1: time. Yep. I wish
5: you guys could see this,
1: but you can't.
5: Right. <laughs> well, for scoring several minutes ago, when I first had this
3: rye, I thought it was was
1: delightful. There's the joke. There it is. There it is. There <laughs>
3: You know, they're fun to explore. I'm glad you guys like it. The old style of whiskey. Um, a lot of it, I think, is is mm. from us migrating overseas, you know, to states here. We just carried the styles of whiskey from over there to here and used the ingredients that were available to us, which was, Rye was really popular in the 1700s. And mm-hmm. You malt it all up in this fashion. You get um, kind of a European style whiskey with the American grain. So I've seen the the old Pogue in stores before, but I don't think I've seen the Maysville Club or the Bell. Are these available distillery only or are No, they, they, they are out there, but I tell you, that part of the business is ever changing, particularly in the past two years with COVID. Um, things have um, really accelerated to online shipping, which I, I don't hmm. do yet, but it is coming down the pipe awfully fast. Um, Typically, these products can be found in New York, Illinois, Kentucky. I am having a difficult time keeping up with New York and Illinois right Mm. now. Um,
4: I see them every once in a while on the shelves at a Total Wine.
3: Yeah. Yeah, the Kentuckians, the people in my backyard sure let me know when they can't find things. (laughs) (laughs) Try to keep that situation, you know, content. Um, And I I do hate to not be able to supply everybody. It's It's a funny thing basically guessing what the trends are in five to 10 years. Right. Um, it is, you know, highly studied. Um, universities and trade associations try to get an accurate depiction of what the supply-demand models are going to be in the future. But whew, it, it is um, tough to say for sure how much I need to make. If you all would sign contracts with me today about how much you're drinking in 10 years. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, you can do... All the
5: studies that you want and they might actually have some predictive power at a population level mm-hmm. but none of if that's actually actionable sure. for a smaller medium-sized distillery mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know, the, there's there's an entirely other domain there's there's the domain of scientific knowledge but then there's also wisdom yeah yeah you know?
3: it is fun to be a small producer i will say because uh, old mazel club and bella mazel here are terribly expensive to produce They're about six to seven times as expensive to produce compared to old Pogue. And that is the grain Mm -hmm. itself. The grain is just about 60 cents per pound on both those. And the principal grain on our bourbon is about 10 to 14 cents per pound. Hmm. So a really large entity, one that's publicly traded, for instance, that is a very difficult bottom line to digest for Mm -hmm. um, these types of products. You know, I have to say, like... I think it's so, could you imagine if we had gone to Four Roses or somewhere else? We wouldn't hear anything about what the grain actually costs, about any of this process. So the insight that you're giving here, and you know, just as, as a bourbon enthusiast myself, like it's super interesting to really get a better feel for that side of the industry. Sure. Yeah, it's, um, there are numbers to be crunched every day um, <laughs> trying try to do this right. And there's also, it is a predictive model trying to scale up. Um, a whiskey that's, you know, in the 60 cents per pound uh, range, mm-hmm. it can be tough to envision. And there's also a shortage of the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only X amount of grain available, and as soon as these things um, are in vogue with other producers, boy, there's a lot of competition, and the price goes up even more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know, it, it, It's I, I'm really comfortable with this scale, honestly. Um, it, it's fun to delve into these things. I, I can't say yeah. I have huge um, intentions to do broad expansion of those product lines. The internet, I think, will hopefully open doors to people if they want to try these things. Um, that opportunity is coming down yeah. pretty yeah. soon. Well, I, I hope so because I, I this ride, particularly, I really, really yeah. dig in this. Oh, oh, yeah, so I, for sure.
1: And and I've been. You know, on the podcast we joke. There's Team Old Fashioned sitting next to me to my right, Mr. Buzz. I'm typically Team Manhattan, and I like a good rye Manhattan because it takes on the sweet vermouth a little bit better. And I can see, I can see um, some excellent
4: Manhattans being made with uh, with what's in that bottle. (laughs) Yeah, I on the other hand, and other hand, am not a particularly big rye guy. but I can drink the hell out of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Like it's, it's I, really it's, good. It's
1: so smooth. Like I just, it's like that can't be a higher proof that it's unbelievable.
5: Well, that, that's a very good point in, in particular. I, I don't care for very high proof whiskeys just as a, a matter of course. I find, find them harsh and this is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't have told me that that was, was high proof. Um, yeah. Cheers. Try to make really Fun.
3: smooth whiskeys. We do. Yeah. Family tends to like that. It, it's fantastic.
4: You Knew we were talking before we went on the record. Um, bottling the record. on the record. record. On, on the record. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's we funny. were off the record. Um, All
1: eight of our listeners, half of which are at this table. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Why does this feel like a deposition?
4: <laughs> One of us may be a lawyer. <laughs> is not legal advice uh in any, in any <laughs> event, we were we were talking when we were doing a tour of the facilities uh, before we started recording there, there you, 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 you go <laughs> less official but in any event uh in in 2019 i think it was july 2019 it was the week before i took the bar exam i had to drive to buffalo to take the bar and john and and peter uh called me and were like you want to come hang out we're bottling Uh, And so I grabbed my little brother and we came down here and it was just like a whole family affair. Um, You know, 10, 15 people in a kind of a little assembly line. John was filling the bottles. Uh, My little brother sat with some some folks. They were slapping stickers on the bottles. I was uh, putting them in boxes and lifting the boxes.
3: Yeah, it's it's a pretty manual process. Um,
4: And and it's it's, all family, right?
3: It's it's all family. Um, It's the original intent of the company is to spend more time together. It really is our mission statement. And that's an excellent, you know... Opportunity to, to participate, um, and everybody juggles something in their own right. But that bottling activity, a lot of people want to get involved in it, the um, whole community does. I don't have enough liquor to substantiate that, but <laughs> it's just um, like a lottery system. You yeah, know. it could yeah. happen. I'm a little oh, control freak about it. I tend to really like my veterans on the line and trying to get all these <laughs> labels straight and not have a fit, yelling at my own family. Um, <laughs> but could, it, it's part of the process.
5: You could turn this into a profit center, right? The, the bottling experience. Yeah, all and people
3: the- do. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: it's, uh, you know, it, it fortunately at this scale endeavor, I mean, we, we kind of isolate the different activities the time of year. It gives everybody a rhythmic um, calendar. You know, so we'll bottle here in the next couple of months to get all the brands um, situated and fall is a big uh, time for the industry to sell brown spirits, um, mm-hmm. get that activity taken care of. And then production is pretty much the remainder of the year, some maintenance and, mm-hmm. you know, cleaning time.
4: So for the, the listeners, so you can kind of visualize this, you can look the distillery up on Google or Google Earth and you can see what the, um, what the facilities look like, but we're currently sitting in um, the old home place, the old house and across the driveway is the distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sitting on what maybe 3 4 square acres of 7. Okay, that's 3 plus yeah. 4 square it's, acres.
1: It's very slow. It's very slow. It, it was
2: Probably it was usable.
1: mildly <laughs> terrifying coming down that driveway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Horse
5: and buggy, yes. yeah. reminds reminds me of my aunt and uncle's place on Pikes Peak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: it uh, it was mildly terrifying. Uh, the, the the visibility over the front end of the car was uh minimal. I almost yeah. I, I almost asked Buzz to get out of the car. I did not ask Buzz to get out of the car. I don't know we made for it. You,
2: though.
1: <laughs> we, we made it. I'm glad that I we took the vehicle that we did and yeah. your vehicle or not the larger vehicle. Yeah, exactly. My, well, so, my Miata probably would have gotten high centered. So
4: they had a a bar, Maysville Bar Association. Dinner here mm-hmm. several years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and they chartered a trolley from the city of Maysville to go up this. <laughs> 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 Mind you, the, the trolley is wider than the driveway. Mm-hmm. And did they do it? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, they got it. <laughs> Somebody tipped that driver. He's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a, a public way. public servant public service
1: sure is that's uh that's that's i mean i had a hard time in my sedan <laughs> <laughs> we're so on a trolley up. but it is i mean we're here for the history
3: the historical side of it and our license is here that is a subject we kind of touched on uh, briefly earlier um our license is tied to these grounds that's a weird part of um how we're governed is i, I can't go off site off of this site and make alcohol or sell alcohol it all has to be here and that's ever since 1876 1873s uh-huh. mm-hmm. the of these Crowns so mm-hmm. it's terrible terrain don't build a factory on the hillside you guys need to hear that from anybody but I was uh, thinking
5: about it but
1: uh, good counterpoint it, 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 it. I'm trying to remember did we talk about the, the terrace on, on air or did we not talk about we it we
4: talked about the terrace on the air okay how it fell
1: off the house I think so yeah I yeah, think it, it was on okay. all, show right. There. all right. alright well either way uh, it, it fell off the house because it's on a really steep hillside if um if that isn't on air, now it is.
2: Yeah, <laughs> we didn't the relive only. the whole story, but... Yeah.
1: So <laughs> Chancellor's getting up
3: now to go and, and see no, what he I, can I, see. I was under
4: the impression there was a photo... The, the old that. star is in that photo. There it is. Um,
3: that's not the only legendary accident to have happened. No, I mean, there, right? there were a couple of accidents in the distillery back in the 1800s, early 1900s, that claimed um, some of my family members. Um, and, and they weren't really direct accidents, but... Yeah, it was a very dangerous time. There's no OSHA or any presence like that back then. Um, You can actually see in the images behind me, those are the fermenters and I think the mash cookers and one of them. It's all really big belt driven equipment to turn agitators, to turn grinders for grain. grain. Um, It's um, pretty dangerous environments and Mm -hmm. a couple of my ancestors got tangled in those belts and Ended up dying ultimately through kind of infections. Um, and another one had a near miss, you know, got pulled into it and was able to salvage his life, but had his arm chewed up pretty good. It was really dangerous. And, and frankly, I think that was part of the reason why my family left that industry um, was we had a gruesome path. Um, and a lot of people did mm-hmm. back yeah. then. I mean, In various professions, they claim lives quite often.
4: On that note, way to. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, like, Michael, job, Michael, Michael. Michael's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. well, so you had some accidents on the ground, huh? <laughs> yeah.
5: We'll put this in the show notes. A fun, light-hearted
3: podcast.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah.
4: So as a as a
3: segue to watches, I guess we're here. Oh, no, we,
4: yeah, we still got some yeah. some bourbon. We, left. Yeah. we yeah. have some bourbon
1: left. Uh, we we didn't do our wrist check. We didn't do the we forgot to do that. We can take a,
3: a brief brief uh, commercial break.
1: For some we can do watches. we can do some watches. Hey, uh, we did we do still have on loan from our buddy Nick. Uh, I was I was told it's it's his um his handle is actually reincarnate.
4: as uh, oh. how you say? Yeah,
1: all, oh. nobody knew that. <laughs>
2: I'm dense. <laughs> no, that's just. That's,
4: um, you're not dense. That's a tooth.
2: I was wearing it a couple episodes ago, <laughs>
1: and it's very fitting that we do have a uh, a yellow dialed Seiko pogue uh, with us uh, on on air tonight, but, as well as some other pieces. But, hey, uh, Spence, was that pogue made recently, or is it kind of? Old. It's it. You know they haven't made the poe recently. Although I was talking with our friend uh, Evan Spangler slash Mike Stockton because they might be the same person. I've yeah. never seen them both. Never at the seen same them both time. at the same time. Never know. Uh, like that if, if if Seiko ever decided to do a remake of that watch, all of us would be extremely here for it. Yes. Although we're also not convinced that Buzz and Rick from Scottish watches aren't the same person yet either. That's true. Uh, the similarities in that photo wow. release are very. They're eerie. My other side <laughs> of
5: the family is from Scotland.
1: That is true. <laughs>
5: Mm, the name starts with a Mac. So. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, I'm wearing my, uh, because this podcast is going to air on the first of the month, um, I'll probably wear it again on that day. But I'm wearing my Zenith El Primero. Also, I had to time the trip down. It's a compulsive thing. Uh, did, did, did you stop the crowd? I did stop it. And it what was even with our multiple detours trying to figure out this hillside. One, one hour, 11 minutes. So right. So we beat Google Maps by three minutes, even with the detour. Because hey, it's always a challenge.
5: <laughs> proud of you, buddy. Yeah. I'm proud.
1: What have you got yeah. on Buzz?
5: Okay. I have my Doxa Sub 300T Sea Rambler. It's a delight. I love it. It's still on the bracelet. And I knew that it had to come with me today because there's some Doxa dudes that's there there are a few like, Doxa dudes. I, uh, yeah. I am wearing
3: my Doxa Sub-300 Noti Sea Rambler 50th Anniversary Limited Edition, which well, this, uh, I guess among Chris Soul's watch I borrowed for a while, kind of spawned the Doxa influence here within our, our group. But, uh, dude, Buzz, I'm, I'm glad that you're wearing the hell out of that thing, man. It looks great on your wrist.
5: I appreciate that. It was seeing your Sea Rambler in person that got me... Turned on to the Sea Rambler colorway.
3: Well what so, can I say? You're welcome.
5: Oh absolutely. And that the fiftieth anniversary, the, the font on the dial, uh, it's it, it's it's beautiful. It it haunts my dreams. I I was not patient enough to uh, to find one. So well, we, just, we
3: can we can trade for it. There points. we go. There
5: Let's we do it. Yeah. Oh
3: so cute. Friendship
5: Stangler, nice. what have you got?
0: <laughs> um well since we are doing a quasi so red bar meetup, I guess you you could call it that, I did bring a few watches here. And oh, so I brought
1: eight. I'm not going to talk about all of them. Yeah, you're right. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, so I did bring uh, a shit ton of watches over here with them. <laughs> okay. But I Schwarzkopf from the way down here. Nice. And uh, I was nice. wearing my Laurier Hyperion on the left. Oh, and uh, my Cincinnati Watch Co. Um, Cincinnati's Field Watch. I've not right. seen that oh, cool. one yet. Pass yeah. that bad boy over. Here. Um, yeah. I, so, uh,
1: I didn't buy one of these yet. I feel like I'm going to end up with one. Okay. All right, yeah. touche, Rick. The well dials on, on
0: those Citizen watches are, <laughs> I think, are fantastic. The
1: texture is great. And you got the blue one. That's so
0: good. I'm a big FC Cincinnati fan. i want to slap that bad boy on an orange yeah. rubber. It's going to be great.
4: got have got to call Jordan and see if he can replace the um, yellow and white hands with orange and white.
1: Oh really cool yeah. Jordan may or may not have replaced other hands for you, so
0: he did. <laughs> we
1: don't want to talk about that though. <laughs> we
0: don't want to talk about it, but I may have that watch with me, so you
1: know. Yeah. Of course you do. It goes with you everywhere. Uh,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Alright, yeah. Chancellor, bring us home. Because uh, I noticed John's
4: not wearing a watch yet. Although we should have had yeah. you put the pogue. We should have, on. Put, a, we yeah,
1: should have put, yeah. put we should have had you put the Pogue on. <laughs> that Next
0: would
4: have been time. great.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, I am wearing my Longa eighteen fifteen. Um it's, uh 38.5 millimeter in rose, and I'm wearing it on a Deluxe uh, pastel blue suede strap because I wanted it to be summer, but it's a little bit cold here. A little cold It's still gray. chilly. You are wearing your barber jacket. I'm wearing so. my barber yeah. jacket. Shout out to John. John. Motor John. <laughs>
1: Motor John. You know, I'm What's beginning right?
3: to think, Chancellor, I'm beginning to think you're sponsored by Deluxe because anytime anybody's like, that's a good strap for my watch, <laughs> inevitably, Chancellor's like, you're like, Deluxe.
4: Oh, look, I was... Another manufacturer for a while, I won't name, and then I tried Deluxe because I'd scratch the shit out of my watches if I tried to uh, change the spring bars by myself. Uh, mm. And so Deluxe is all quick uh, quick release, release spring yeah. bars um, for the same price as, as pretty much any other like decent leather manufacturer. And so I'm I'm sold. And you know, it's, it's totally, you can customize pretty much anything. You know, I, I called Ken and said, or I sent him a message on Instagram. I was like, can I just put, I want a rose gold buckle on anything? He's like, yeah, just... Put it in the comments on your order, and it's good. And you got it. and That's so awesome. Two days from Singapore. um Jeez. Yeah, uh, packaged really nicely in a little Ziploc, uh, individual uh, spaces for each side of the strap. It's, awesome. it's Yeah, he's got a pretty good outfit.
1: Well, and that, that that piece is phenomenal. I'm a little disappointed it's not on a NATO. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I, we'll I, I couldn't find that.
4: any 20-millimeter spring bars, but... Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, Steve's disappointed. Steve is disappointed. Steve is but disappointed, disappointed, but he's okay. But he's okay. Um... <laughs> Okay, we did our risk check. Yeah, we have so one more bottle of whiskey. We do, and
1: actually, I was going to translate. I was going to had an interesting way to transition back to that because you guys were talking briefly about the subject of whiskey flippers and and you know encouraging people to drink even rarer bottles with their with their family and friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I think all of us are also on team wear the watches. You know, it, certain things. You know, th- there are definitely similarities between the two subjects of our podcast where you used to. 10, 15 years ago, be able to go in and buy most of the even even the higher dollar whiskeys. Yes, they were more expensive. Yes, they were aged more. But you could still find them. Oh yeah, you could yeah, go in yeah, sure. buy them if that yeah. was what you wanted. And now it's just a ridiculous environment. And it's the same thing with certain watch brands that will go nameless but have a five pointed crown, among <laughs> others. You know, I use the comparison between them and Buffalo Trace it's all the, the time. time. I mean, oh, the, it, it's, it's all about the hype And it, yeah, it yeah. Yeah. but like, and people are like, oh, I shouldn't. It's like, no, you should wear it. I mean, yes, I ended up moving on from, from the, the Submariner place. that I had. But I wore it a ton in the the, the year plus that I had it. I just, I couldn't justify keeping that amount of money tied up in that watch knowing what it was worth. But at the same point, you know, I've got all these other ones. I wear every single thing that I've got and you're wearing a beautiful Lana that is on your wrist a ton because I see it in pictures a lot. You know, I mostly
4: do it it because I know it's going to get a ton of likes in our Red Bar chat.
1: (laughs) It's all about the hype over here. But that being said, we're moving on to the highest proof um, whiskey that we have on the table, and I am very excited
4: yeah, to I try I've, it. Yeah, I have not had this Belle of Maysville yet. Um, Ooh. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited about it. I drink the hell out of the Maysville Club. Um, and then I have a bottle of the Port of Kentuck uh, that I've also not not opened. There's one back there up on the, the mantle. Um,
3: Single barrels. Um, that Port of Kentuck and, and Mason and uh, this Bella Mason were all single barrels. Um, I think there's 50, maybe 60 cases of this one in existence. Um, it's fun to do little one offs, go through the inventory, find kind of the old recipes that we've been working on. This one was eight years old, um, it's 114 proof, and I think it went into the barrel like 120, so it's lost several points. Um, but this is another old style of just 100%. Malted wheat whiskey.
1: I like a good wheat. Sure
5: you're... Oh, go ahead. I was just being fancy. I I really don't know a whole bunch about uh, tasting or testing these, so I just do whatever Pandolfo does. It's, <laughs> it's a, I it's just noticed he go. put a, a splash in and swirled it
3: around. Yeah, until... there's. I think like for scotch tastings, that's what some guys say to do is you pour a little bit of the new scotch in there and then chuck it on the floor. Hmm. <laughs> Cross contamination. Trying to eliminate that. This it's <laughs> true. There are I I'm mean incredible tasting that. panels. Like the, most are. I did eighty samples in a day, and <laughs> you're like a numb mess. After, you know, it's impossible. It's you impossible. have to it's take impossible. breaks. But it's funny. If this is your instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like I said earlier, I don't trust myself. It, it's important that you kind of step away and try to keep your glassware consistent. Try not to eat anything that's particularly pungent and mm-hmm. strong. Um, very liberal with water use. We will usually go barrel strength initially and then dilute down to bottle strength and then down to 90, down to 70, down to 50 and 30. And just to try to create a spectrum of the aromas. um, And and water will certainly change the profile. Generally, it tends to bring out sweeter notes. So Mm -hmm. if you like a little bit sweeter side of whiskey, adding water, yeah. Perfectly
1: acceptable. Well, I mean, that's what it's interesting. We were lucky enough to chat with the master distiller at, um, oh, code uh, Chivas Regal, Glenn He does all that's of those brands. Amazing. Um, it was, it was a really fun conversation and he's been doing it since I think longer than I've been alive. Um, Sandy's, and he was, yeah. it, it was, it was one of the most, he was one of the nicest guys I've ever met and he's okay. the master distiller of this massive entity and he's talking about the amount of samples and he doesn't, he goes, I'll taste maybe six in a week. Yeah. And it's all done on the My nose, gosh. and it's just, it, just talking with him about what you were describing, and he, I think the favorite thing that he joked about was, he's like, you know, the the Oxford and Cambridge, they did all these things on, on what the appropriate um, tasting to get all the right flavor profiles of a whiskey. Is. He, he goes, and they did this study, and it was twenty one point three seven percent. He goes, well, he goes, ever since I've been doing this, we've been doing it at twenty percent. So he goes, I could have told you that. Why'd you guys waste five years? <laughs> you <Yeah>. he, <he's laughs> like, could just ask. I'd have told you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it just he it just but that the whole process of getting all of that you know all the uh, flavor notes and understanding the flavor profile like I'm a luddite when it comes to I could not tell mm-hmm. you anything I just know what I like and what tastes good um, and so far you're two for two and I, I yeah. can't imagine that I'm, you're not gonna be three for three here because right. I like it's very human I mean, mm-hmm.
3: you go travel different parts of the world try their cuisine you may not like it and they may love it. It's a bit of a nurtured trade. Um, the flavors that you really identify with, and boy, when you make whiskey the global kind of uh, product, it's it, you really miss some countries for sure. They just don't, they don't like that particular sweetness mm-hmm. in bourbon, for instance. That mm-hmm. isn't uncommon on a big scale. So
4: this is the first time I've tried the mm. the Bell of Maysville. Yeah. Um it hit me really hard right in the face. It was really hot right up front, and then it mellowed out yeah. real quick. This is really good. Yeah. It's got a little bit more, like you said, a little bit more heat up front, but it doesn't have... It's got a
1: really good finish. A really good finish. Um, it's delicious.
3: This is a, a little bit more of a sweet whiskey for me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of a confectionery uh, sugar, almost. Mm-hmm. You tend to get that with wheat. Um, wheat, you know, is common secondary grain anymore. tends to bring out sweeter notes in bourbon. Um, and comparing a malted wheat versus a malted rye, that's the most drastic uh, comparison, just that, mm-hmm. that sweetness a little bit. Of yeah, sweetness. I was going to had kind of similar thoughts on the, the malted rye. You get those kind of spicy, herbaceous rye notes, but that sweetness of the malt helps to balance it out. Mm-hmm. And here it's just like the sweet wheat, the yeah. sweet malt, and yeah. that proof will hit you right immediately, but then it mellows out. Yeah. It's Syrup. really delicious. Yeah. 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 Syrupy. Yeah. Yeah, water does help. I mean, I typically drink, my whiskey is about 90 proof. Uh, Mm -hmm. The barrel strength stuff is fun, but gosh, it it can wear you down over time, but I think it's healthy to uh, add water, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yeah. Chancellor's adding a a drop, what, two
0: Two, two two drops. drops. Two drops.
3: Two drops of water. Fresh, fresh Kirkland purified water. So we have the the Costco. The Costco, Costco. Yeah, Costco. There we go. Buzzy, right.
0: Buzzy is a big fan of the. Uh, this is now Costco, Costco,
1: whiskey. This the,
4: is now Costco whiskey. whiskey. This is now
5: Costco whiskey. This is now Costco. you're gonna to have to represent
3: me, buddy.
4: That does See, mellow. I'm,
1: I'm a big fan of. Uh, I use the ice sphere. That's that's my go-to. Sure. When I, love. I, I love a good whiskey on the. And that's mainly just for a temperature thing. I yeah. I struggle with red wine as well. I you know I, I like. I like my beverages to be cold. <laughs> it's it's just it's a thing. I'm not I'm not a fan of lukewarm room temperature beverages, and, and whiskey is the same. Give me a nice, give me a nice cold whiskey on a on a on a big ice cube and a cigar out on the back deck in seventy to eighty degree weather. And I'm mm. pretty happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's big yeah,
3: too. <laughs> I mean after after five pm you won't see the a camera in my hand. Yeah. It's usually you know on the rocks mm-hmm. sitting out there in my quality control lab. Um, that's, that's the way you should oh, do it. Yeah, I'm saying it. this to the guy that had like five different glasses of whiskey just on his couch in his sweatpants and his Glen Cairn last night <laughs> <and> <laughs> watching Netflix, you know, and you got to keep, keep a good balance, you know, classy Cairn and then lounging in front of the TV. No, my,
4: uh, whenever I do tastings with my friends, of course, tastings always end up being an uh, entire bottle's gone, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was working in Louisville last year with a, a couple of people who became big bourbon guys and it would always be like, yeah, we're just going to taste like these five different bottles. And then there would be times when two of them would be empty by the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was always,
1: you guys have a tasting problem. Yeah. It, was, <laughs> it, was, it, was
4: uh, it, it always started out. We always started out neat and then added one cube of ice to see how the ice and, and the, the water opened it up. And I think, I think that's, that's my preferred way to drink the stuff.
3: Yeah okay we uh in the past couple of years my mom and my brother and I have gotten really into bourbon I, I I always drank it but just within the past three years they started to get into it too and you know as I travel around from school to school and job to job it's we'll do virtual tastings and whatnot so it's really been this nice way to be We I mean, you know we were talking about family and, and bourbon earlier it's been a nice way to you know still stay actively in touch and share experiences with them even though we're thousands of miles apart. But I was just down, um, I was back home for uh, a few days just recently. I just got back uh, to Cincinnati yesterday and we did a, a big old tasting. We, we just usually will do like, oh, we're going to do rise or we're going to do this distillery or something like that. But last night, since we hadn't seen each other in a while, it was just whatever new bottles we had, we were going through and tasting. So we had everything from Rebecca Creek like whiskey club picks to we even did like the Tears of Urana tequila and everything so we went all across the board but it is nice when you you know when you have family members that have that appreciation for it and you can kind of sit down and be methodical and thoughtful in how you're tasting and just kind of share that experience with everybody. Yeah, very true and, and whiskey has changed quite a bit I mean in the past 30 years arguably it was not doing great right in the 90s and the whole business model prior to the 90s was kind of High volume, hit the low shelf, and our culture shifted. <laughs> Suddenly, we're all interested in kind of more refined product, better better quality, um, which is great. So, I great. so you, all yeah. were,
4: you all have been a primary beneficiary of this culture shift, too.
3: Yes, unexpectedly. Because so, you, you, you en-
4: entered the game right at like a lull in yeah. bourbon and whiskey's popularity, and then as, as your first product started going out the door... Um, yeah we started seeing the shift right so what do you yeah. what do you attribute that to do you think
3: um, oh gosh, the most common reasons i have heard are overseas um, the, the Asian market, particularly Japan, really started to take an interest in bourbon um, and, and we're buying incredible supplies of it in the 2000s um, but also things like anthony Bourdain and Mad Men? I was, yeah. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the revival culture. of the old-fashioned. Um, yeah, that's how I got it. And can you explain pop culture to me? I, I can't, <laughs> but it picked up a couple brands, and they are now in the stratosphere and will yeah. never come back down, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. great. And Anthony Bourdain, I can't remember how... It was like one of his first episodes. He pulled a bottle of Pappy off the top shelf, and it was like $60 and the world took note, and that was outrageous price whiskey for that time, and, you know, now it's it's way more expensive, um, depending on particularly where you're buying it from, but boy, it really, it, it was just a cultural shift, and in this industry, trying to predict those is <laughs> very difficult, mm-hmm. we're, we we try to hit the nail on the head, but generally we're 10 years behind it. So what's your opinion, and I, I know a lot of people that really keep a tab on you know the bourbon secondary market and just the 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 market of bourbon and bourbon production in general and a lot of these guys have been saying that in the next three four years a lot of people are going to be shifting to rum and tequila sure so as you know a a producer of bourbon are you is that something that you're taking into consideration for the next five to six years or, or what are your thoughts on that um you know, the, the other classes of alcohol are difficult to say they will steal my customers away. They might, I mean, I, I think everybody has, that freedom is great, to so go pick and choose what you want from the shelf. The people that come see me are really passionate about our bourbon in particular, or just bourbon in general. And they might delve into the other categories, but they don't tell me very much about it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I have a difficult time accounting for that one. Honestly, the biggest shift for us, has been the social media side in the past 20 years. Social media has been invented in that time frame. And we saw weird kind of feedback loops where um, in some of our states where we distribute products, they'd have these social media clubs pop up and the social media club would sell our product for X dollar amount um, to, to somebody else in another state that didn't have access to our product. And then the retailers in that state where we were distributing would take note of those price increases and then they would set the price on their shelf to parallel what was going on oh, wow. in social media. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do a thing. <laughs> we didn't hear about it quite a bit. And it's created a, a little bit of a um, problem in my customer base psychologically, um, you know, we're trying to. I think everybody understands social media a little bit better now, but there, there was a wild disparity there for a time where old Pogue was going for $300 in the states. And yeah. well, we had no idea what was going on. Um, I, I can't say that I accurately know what 2030 holds for any of us. It, it's, um, I, I think it'd be great if you had better quality rums, better quality tequilas, all, all the brown spirits are lifted to another level. Um, I, I really enjoy brown spirits personally um, there's, there's a chance for that terroir again for kind of communities to create aromas and exceptional products if, if you're lucky um, enough. but it's kind of a roll of the dice in that time scale I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I'm well, just, well it's hard making it the best project it's hard because you're going off of
1: people's taste palates you know oh, true, like but that. I mean I, I feel like I mean, do I want to drink the same thing over and over again? Not necessarily, which is why I have several different bottles of even different bourbons or ryes in my liquor cabinet. But at the same point, I can't say to the point, even 10 years from now that I'd be like, yep, I'm completely done with, I mean, unless you have, and let's all be real, we've all kind of been there, usually significantly younger, although some of you are significantly younger than me anyway, maybe you haven't <laughs> even had it, but you, you all have that one bad experience with that one drink, that one night, and you're like, ah, I, it takes years for that to come back. I don't see me having that experience at this stage in my life with any no. of the things that I have at my house. No. Yeah. Like, let's be real. Like, e- even if I get really into tequila in five years for some reason, I'm still going to want a Manhattan fairly mm. frequently, yeah. I feel like. And I'm still going to want to put a good a good brown spirit or a good rye or whiskey in that Manhattan. So I people's tastes evolve and they change. But, like, if, if people like bourbon, I don't – It's very rare that you meet somebody who, like, in in their 30s, 40s, 50s, like, "Ah, I don't like bourbon anymore. There has to be a trigger there. It's like, I still like bourbon, but I'm also very interested in this. Well, there's a distinction. I may not buy as as much as I used to, but I'm still going to buy it. There's a (laughs)
3: distinction, too, between, like, you know, you can look, if you're in, like, Chancellor and I are in these Facebook bourbon groups, and you can look at those guys, the people there, men and women that are serious collectors and have, you know, 80 to 200 bottles, and they're done with the bourbon market because they can't find things at retail or they don't mm-hmm. to right. do secondaries, so they're going to go to other brown spirits. But the average consumer, they've got three different bottles of bourbon, and that's enough. Yep. So yeah. you have to say, what percentage of the bourbon-drinking population are these
1: serious collectors versus the majority? Well, and that's interesting because the other thing we talk about on this podcast is watches, and we've talked about that exact same thing. We, we've talked about how... When I first got into bourbon, when I kind of moved down here, under, you know living really close to Kentucky, down up in Cincinnati, right across the river, um, Eagle Rare was still something you could find pretty readily. Like you, you sometimes had to search for it, but Eagle Rare has been my go-to pretty solid bourbon for a very affordable price. And I can't find it anymore. It's to the point where when my brother-in-law comes down from Detroit, he brings me store picks from up there because he yeah. can get it. Yeah. Um, I go up to northern Indiana where my family's from, and I get it there. I don't get it down here because everybody down here knows about it. Um, five to seven years ago when we moved down here, I don't, I don't want to say that people didn't know about it, but it was still something you could, you could just get it. You
4: I would could, go into the, the Rite Aid on North Broadway in Lexington. I don't know, Michael, you could if you get it. that. I,
1: I've got
3: some Eagle Rare Rite Aids before.
4: Uh, I mean, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, it, but it's if just, you know this Rite Aid, yeah. Yeah. like I, I would walk in, there would be Blanton's, there would be Eagle Rare, like.
1: But it's the same thing. Like what you know, we talk about certain watch brands the same way. People are serious collectors and you talk about profits and all this other stuff. It's like. When I first got into the watch collecting hobby, when I was going to go buy that first watch to mark the birth of our first child, there was a Submariner in the case. A Rolex Submariner mm-hmm. just said there was a date and a no date. Everything was in the case at Richter and & Phillips. And I tried it on. I was like, ah, it's more than I want to spend. Literally a year and a half later, like, oh, there's a waitlist. You can't find it. You can't find them at all. If you want to pay 2X retail, you can get one. Yeah. You know, Daytonas are insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know. Oh, They're just, like
3: almost 40K now.
1: Which is insane. Yeah. It's a 13 I mean 13,000 is expensive, but a yeah. 13,000 dollars watch selling for $40,000 is
0: even more expensive. But then again, it, let's be honest here. You're not going to get one for $13,000 ever. It's like a ghost MSRP, right? you will never yeah. just spend $13,000 yeah.
1: to get it. It's fair because you're going to be buying a Lady Date just yes, or exactly. three. But you know <laughs> three, you know, <laughs> Datejust, you know,
3: you three know three what's countries. really interesting though Spence is like the common denominator I see here is social media and celebrities. It is. It's right. all because right. because mm-hmm. these Rolex sport models we're sitting in the case until Instagram and YouTubers hype them up. Same with bourbon. Until mm-hmm. we start seeing these celebrity figures or the idea of, you know, a collector showing their stuff off on social media really came to fruition, you could find them readily available. So I guess the conversation we need to have is, oh, why are we so influenced by social media? Well,
1: but it's, uh, it, that's, well, that's a little bit
4: metaphysical. <laughs> it <laughs> is.
1: But I mean, the big point was Pappy was a $60 bottle and Anthony Bourdain pulled it off the shelf. You could go in and try on a Rolex Submariner five years ago. Yeah, it, it, it's it's. But oh, was I had another parallel with that? I had a parallel with it. Where is it at? Give me a second. <laughs> give me a second. Take another sip of bourbon. Let yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take another sip. It was. um <laughs> Oh, hold on social media social media
2: friends, oh
1: the regular consumers. the regular consumer versus the other it's oh, yeah. the same thing going oh i like eagle Rare. i had it at the bar the one time yeah it was a little expensive i'm going to try to find out oh it's a lottery to it's get, get that. yeah you yeah. can't get it like why it's a lottery why? to get a
4: 33 three dollar bottle it's, yeah. why
1: why is that the case it's the same thing people people think of watches they oh yeah got my promotion at work i'm gonna go get you know i'm i'm getting a rolex it's like yeah i want to submit yeah you're gonna to have to wait a year for that wait wait what the Rolex's Rolex ads are everywhere, but you can't find the watch you want. We're getting to the point you can't find a blue thirty-six millimeter date just, no. which used to be the watch that everybody like. You can't find that watch. No. Um, and, and we talked with um, our buddy RJ, north, Kama. RJ Kama, north of the border. It, what is what is the entry level Rolex? And it, it is the other brand that that AD carries. What is yeah. what, language, what is Twitter. what is your Eagle Rare oh, yeah, at retail? Yeah, it's yeah. whatever else that liquor store has mm-hmm. on the shelf that you're like, "Yeah, this
4: one's pretty good too." But it, it's it's you're seeing the same in both industries. Like you mm-hmm. can't get a Rolex uh, at retail, so I'm going to go buy an Omega. Good job. Good job. Good job.
3: If you can't buy Blanton's, <laughs> so you get Ancient Age, or if it's a total wine, they'll push Chestnut Chestnut.
4: Right, numbers. right. But like yeah. if I can't get a Blanton's or an Eagle Rare or an EH Taylor, I'm going to get I'm going to get an Evan Williams single barrel. But um, that good bottle. That's choice. a fantastic uh, bottle. choice. But I, I a you know you know, right. you know to, to some extent they're, they're not fungible goods but they kind of are fungible goods yeah because um, you're gonna get something that's good that tastes good that's gonna you know fulfill the exact same thing that you need it to you're gonna get something that is in the same price range uh, that's going to tell just as good time that's going to be just as highly finished yeah and it's going to be you know readily available so you know it's it's, it's all hype and none of it's worth it
1: No, right. Like our
4: Dustin always says, the Daytona is the worst deal in watches. He says it's the worst. Every every time he moves up,
1: it's it's the worst thirty thousand dollar watch. It's the worst forty thousand dollar watch. He goes, it's 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 an okay thirteen thousand dollar. He goes, not even a good thirteen thousand dollar watch. It's it's an okay thirteen thousand dollar watch. But yeah, it's just it's just interesting. Like you know, trying these things. I'm going to start looking for this stuff now. The right. good thing is I know where the distillery is. I know the distiller. I can come down and buy it on a Sunday if I need right, to. Right.
4: And Pappy, <laughs> Pappy on the other end, Old Ripton is a great $60, I think it's $80 MSRP now, but it's a great $80 bottle of bourbon. It is a really bad $650 bottle of bourbon. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. It, that's true. Right, there are, there are um, wild price disparities across the states because you can't get that product there, Yeah, which creates this... Submarket where high supply in one state, they will sell to their friends through social media in another yeah. state. That doesn't hold up. I would yeah. I would
4: highly recommend all the people listening today who have Instagram, which I assume is oh, like almost yeah. everyone. The Venn diagram is is just a circle, but follow <laughs> overpriced bourbon on Instagram to see his his stories. People send in like these crazy prices. Um, I mean, like six hundred dollar bottles of plantains yeah. Um, well, then like there's that,
3: is it the same guy or is it Bourbon Finds? Well, he'll usually it's like in Arizona, and they'll be it's a show, always a Arizona. Safe way, and you just get Stag Junior. You know, a. H. Taylor. Dan Cabrera. the Bourbon Man's pretty good at that. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it is. It's always in a state where it's the clear, the clear. Uh, yeah, but tequila. wants. Yeah. And it's like stop shipping there. Then, like send that right. to Ohio. So, yeah.
3: <laughs> well, it doesn't you may know this? I had heard somewhere that Kentucky gets last of allocation for rare bottles, they usually will go out of state first and then it'll come back. Uh, it's difficult to say. Um, there are really two major distributors, wholesalers that have kind of 25 states each roughly. Mm-hmm. The really big producers will either have contracts or just agreements, um, informal agreements with one of those distributors. And the distributors will ultimately pick and choose the final destination. Hmm. And and how they choose that, we don't really govern it. Yeah. We we might have some influence, but it's not our business decision. Um it's a it's a weird middleman that we have to legally um contend with. Um and they they deal with the retailers and I don't know, some sometimes one retailer will get you know X product at one year and then the next year it's not there anymore. So then would you attribute Spence's inability to find Eagle Rare in Kentucky just because Kentuckians oh, no. know this bourbon? This, this is Southern Ohio. I, don't, I rarely
1: Well, cross, Southern Ohio yeah. is basically Kentucky. It really, it it really is. I'm probably
5: going to leave people south. off by saying that. No, it, it is. I grew up in, in Northern Ohio. Cincinnati is the South. I love it. That's, that's not a, a, a derisive <laughs> statement. That's not, not a, a statement of value either way. It, it is different, and it's great, and not just the weather patterns. So Those are quite different. The
1: weather patterns are significantly different. Mm -hmm. Lake effect snow is not a thing. Snow is snow is not a a thing thing thing. down there. (laughs) Not a thing either, Uh, which is good because when it is a thing, it is a it's it's laughable to us northerners (laughs) when when it snows down here. (laughs) Meanwhile, here's me from Texas, and this past winter was the most snow I've ever seen in my life, and it was (laughs) a a very small moderate amount of snow. (laughs) I, I couldn't get my snowblower fired up and I was like, eh, I'll just shovel. It's not that bad. It's not going to last that long. And it lasted a week and a half and it really wasn't that bad.
5: Mm-hmm. Or um, you, you go the other way. You make sure that your snowblower works just so you can do all of your neighbors.
1: Normal, see, normally I, I did that at the old house, but at the new house, we've talked about uh, um, recently, and he's listening, so I, I take very good care of my grandpa's 1986 vet that I was I recently purchased from him. Um, and it occupies my third garage stall and the vet was in front of the snowblower, and behind the vet was a rather large snow mound that turned to ice because the way it like the temperature fluctuated. So there was no way I was backing that vet out over that ice mound. Um, so it didn't really matter. I did carry the snowblower over the vet. I was able to do that. I was very nervous as I did it.
3: It's, I'd like to see that on video. Well,
1: it actually the snowblower. My body stayed between. The snowblower and the vet, which meant that if anything, that that snowblower was going out a window. Which my wife wouldn't; she doesn't listen, so that's fine. It's a sick story. Uh, but yeah. then I got the, I got it out, and I couldn't get it started, which was fine. Um, but yes, uh, I remember I moved down uh, our first winter in our house in Pleasant Ridge before we moved to Anderson Township. Um, my neighbor who had a snowblower, he's like. Well, three of us went in to buy this a few years ago. He goes, why do you have one? I said, I moved from South Bend, Indiana, where last winter we got 84 inches of snow. And he goes, oh, that's why you've got one. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> he, he did the math. He's like, that's about seven feet. And I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, that's why you have a snow blow. <laughs> Uh, Well, I, you know, on that, we, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I think we've been going for – yes, we've been going for just over an hour as we like to um, – I have enjoyed all three of those very much, John. You do yes. a very good job. Yes. It's it's yeah, awesome. And it's it's really nice to meet the people who are behind this. Sure, um, you know month. we we've done I've done distillery tours and you get the tour guide. And it's cool to go see you know where all of those are met. But this is truly a family affair, mm-hmm. and just being on the property, seeing where this juice was made, however many years ago, various ages of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really neat, and, and all three are fantastic. Oh, great. Uh, so if, if anybody is looking for, we tried Old Pogue, we tried
4: the... Uh, Old Maysville Club, and, and the Bell of Maysville. Maysville. Um, Who is on the Bell of Maysville? That's a good question.
3: That is Annabelle Pogue. Um, she is my great aunt. Um, just paying homage to her. There you oh, go. She used to live in that house right over there.
1: <laughs> a family affair. A very much a family right. affair. This has been an absolute blast. Um... A little bit more whiskey heavy, uh, which is always a good thing, Um, and a little bit less watch heavy. But I think we'll call that an episode, and we're probably going to have a couple. Well, I'm not going to have any more because I got to drive you back. But you can have whatever you want, Buzzy. (laughs) Uh, We'll probably talk a little bit more about watches and get to know John a little bit more. But but uh, please, everybody. If you're in the greater Cincinnati area, um, what, what are your operating hours to come down for tours? It's
3: all by appointment at the moment, so okay. the, some COVID precautions. Um, Thursday through Saturday, though, generally okay. just oldpoke.com for making appointments.
1: Sounds great. Uh, you guys on any of the socials as well? We talked about social media? Or? Yeah,
3: all the Instagram and the Facebook. Um, I think those
0: two principally.
1: principal. Okay, sounds great. Well, John, thank you so much for having us. I've thank had an man. absolute blast. Um, it's been great getting to know you, and uh, we'll catch everybody next time. See ya. Everybody
4: enjoys the Spangler jingle.
5: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Whiskey and Watches podcast. If you like what you hear, please take the time to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We are enthusiasts, not experts, so don't at us, but you can find us on Instagram at whiskey.and.watches.podcast. and watches Also visit our website at zeitswatches.com dot Zeitz is spelled Z E I T Z.